What's happening, podcast fam? My name's Jack Nagel, and this is Real Drug Talk. And on this show, we talk about all things alcohol and drugs, addiction, recovery from addiction, treatment, just all things alcohol and drugs. So today's episode is brought to you by our treatment program that we run called Connection Based Living. And what we do is that we help people to transform their lives, beat addictive patterns, all without having to go to rehab. So if that sounds of interest to you uh, or a family member that you have that's struggling, you can visit us at www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. That's www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. Have a look around, uh, book a chat with us, and if we can't help you, we'll point you in the right direction. Into the show. Boom. Welcome, everybody. Um, We're into another show of Real Drug Talk. Now, this is someone that we've got on today that I've been following for like ages, like actually years on social media, particularly like LinkedIn. Um, And I've wanted to chat to her for quite a while. Um, And yeah, she's not in Melbourne. So I'm excited about that because it's good to have people from all over the country on. So uh, today we've got Tara Hurster. Did I get that right? You certainly did. Thank you. First time ever I've butchered some people's names on the podcast. Um, It wouldn't be a podcast if you didn't do that, right? That's right. That's right. And actually, just on that note, um, because it's kind of how we roll on this show, is that, yes, we have some equipment, um, but it's an imperfect setup. And I've got a plumber coming to pick up money, and it's sitting outside, and he's going to pick it up from under wherever it is. Yes. And the dog's going to go crazy anytime soon during this interview. So sorry about that. And sorry, everyone listening. Well, I'll add my little two bits in there because I'm apparently receiving a delivery at the office as well. So <laughs> you might even hear a in the background. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, hey, but just on that, like, I think that's when I'm actually like listening to podcast show, I don't know, I'm a bit of an avid listener of podcasts and stuff like that. It's actually what I like about it, that it's sort of unscripted and people just kind of can talk about anything and have anything happen. Yeah. So I hear it. I hear it. You can smell it if something's been scripted. A hundred percent. How weird does it sound? <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So no, we're real raw. Oh my gosh, that just made me think of, have you seen the the show um, Space, uh, Space, Space, what? With Real Raw Gary? Oh my gosh. No. Oh, okay. I I don't know why Space Jam's in my head. It's not the movie. There's a, there's a TV series on Netflix. It's epic, but anyway. All right. You'll have to uh, send me the link after the show. Maybe we'll put it in the notes as well. Um, <laughs> um hey so so let's get into it i I might actually get you to tell us who you are and and uh, you know we talk about alcohol and drugs and addiction and recovery on this show so how do you fit into this space why why are we talking to you today sure well i i firstly i just want to say thank you so much for for having me on and for no just being so um, so involved in in I guess my process over the years, just through through observing me, that's really cool. It's funny, isn't it? It's kind of freaky. Like you know, I actually have had that moment with people saying shit like that to me. But you know, like for instance, I know you go for runs on the beach in the morning or swim or something because you do like little check in videos. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of funny, isn't it? That's it. That's it. 
it open book tara over here <laughs> that's right yeah no but it's it's been really cool to see you put stuff out by the way so yeah i love thank it you. thank you very much uh well yeah i guess to answer your question who the hell am i um my name's Tara. I'm a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, am the founder of the Tara Clinic and Tara stands for Therapeutic Addiction Recovery Assistance. Yep. So by way of that, my main focus is supporting busy and successful people to regain control over substance use and addiction while leaving the guilt and shame behind. Awesome. Awesome. Interesting. And that's kind of part of what I wanted to talk to you about because one of the big goals of this show is just to kind of keep the conversation happening, um, you know, sort of talk about stigma. And I actually think a community or a sector of, you know, the alcohol and drug using population, if you like, that may end up with um, issues with addiction and stuff is that kind of professional person or, or that person that you maybe wouldn't expect. Um, and I know just from doing the show so far, there's so many of those people that because of social stigmas with their job or yeah, mainly around their professional career, they don't want to talk about it out loud. Yeah. And in addition to the professional career, it's also the status space that they've, they've, they've found themselves in and 100%. feeling like they're weak or they're stupid or they're somehow defective. And, you know, that's, that's really my messaging is no, you're not addiction doesn't discriminate it's just the opportunities for people um reaching out for support that discriminate yeah 100 percent. and would you agree like you know um don't get me wrong like stigma exists across the plane but i don't know it's almost like like i've almost been saying to people lately when i'm talking to people that maybe everyone but maybe people that fit into that sort of professional category um like you, you almost need to like not call it addiction you know because i feel like addiction is kind of attached to this thing that's been played in the movies um this kind of certain stereotype of what that is what that's going to mean for the rest of your life um you know and all those sort of things and when people can overcome that in their own mind and realize that maybe it's not that like yeah like shifts happen yeah absolutely absolutely it's it's interesting you know i've i've worked in uh i've worked with clients who have a lot of money i've worked with yeah. clients who've just been released from prison i've worked with clients who have you know left school in year eight i i've worked yeah. with clients throughout like the whole spectrum yeah. and the thing that is completely consistent is at some point in their world, they weren't taught how to manage big feelings. Yeah. Whether it's stress, distress, pressure, anger, sadness, trauma, stress, whatever it may be, they haven't yeah. had the skills taught to them or, or shown to them through their environment. Perhaps, you know, there was family history of drug and alcohol use. So yeah. When you see mum or dad stressed, they go to the fridge. Okay, that's how I deal with stress when I'm older, you know. Yeah. The, these are the things that we can kind of look at and go, well, it's it's not a defect of character. It's yeah. sim simply a symptom of an underlying problem that we can teach you ways to manage differently and move out of that. 100%. Yeah, really interesting. Uh so, so there's heaps that I want to ask you. Um, so <laughs> before, before we dive into that, I think, um, 
I think people always like to hear, you know, like, how did you get into this space? You know, because that's why I say to people, like, I appreciate when they put things out about addiction into um, like the social media realm, because I guess, I don't know, you might disagree with me, but I feel like, you know, um, even just like working in the addiction space um, or in the alcohol and drug space is like stigmatized within itself, you know, like usually the pays less, the buildings are shit, the working conditions are crap, you know, like that stuff. And it's just a all round there, like exists lots of stigmas and stuff. So yeah, I love that you put, I love that you put the stuff out there. So how did you get interested in it? What made you want to get involved in it? Most people run the other way. <laughs> <laughs> it is the most common question I am asked. Yeah. And uh, I guess the real honest answer is the universe decided that this is what I was going to do with my life. And I nice. didn't really have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the practical story that comes with that statement is when I finished undergrad psychology, um, I, I thought if I go straight into postgrad, I'll either murder people or I'll die. And <laughs> I think that both of those options weren't the best. So I took some time off. Yeah. And um, one year turned into two years, but six months after my first, after I first finished undergrad, I thought, look, I don't want to just waste this time. I want, you know, psychology is really hard to do. And I yeah. was super burnt out by the end of my four years. Yeah. And it meant that I was really wanting to kind of touch it, feel it, smell it, experience it to know do I actually want to put in another two years of effort into this? Yeah. I don't know that I really want to do this. So I sent out a completely empty CV to, you know, hospitals that weren't even open to psychology practices and places and just basically saying, hi, I'm Tara. I've worked in retail, um, but I'll clean your toilets for free if you just let me see what it's like to be a psychologist because I don't know if I want to keep doing this. So, and and just quickly, sorry to interrupt, is... Like, I feel like, like it is a big dedication, but I feel like there actually is a lot of like psychologists, like it's a kind of something that a lot of people do. Is that, is that fair? Like maybe not necessarily in addiction, but just overall, like it's a study that a lot of people do. It was super popular for a period of time there. Yeah. Kind of like there was a period of time where heaps of people wanted to be lawyers and heaps of people wanted yeah. to be engineers and heaps of people wanted to be artists or whatever, yeah. you know, like though they're, I guess there are certain times in in our history where different degrees become the hip thing. Yeah. You know, now with entrepreneurs and Gary V, the <laughs> marketing, they're the ones that everybody wants to get into. Yeah. 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 Or not because he tells you not to go to college, but anyway. A hundred percent. Yep. So uh, sorry to interrupt. I was just I was just curious on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the thing though is psychology is the science of human behavior. Mm. And and when I was in year 10, I mean, you know, there's a whole, I'll get to that point in a minute. But yeah. um, when I was in year 10, I remember looking at the uh, the list of units that I could choose for year 11 and 12, like mm-hmm. see. And I, I remember going and speaking with a family friend of ours who she was a, you know, a business owner and her husband was an engineer and, you know, they, they were really, really impactful in my, in my world. And yeah. I said to her, you know, um, I've chosen, you know, advanced maths, advanced English, uh, biology and, and chemistry and um, ancient history because I'm really interested in it. And I don't know whether to do art 
pardon me, or engineering, because that was, they were both on the one line and that was the last option that I, I had to pick. Yeah. And she said, the most important thing that you need to do in your life is to make choices that widen your options rather mm. than narrow your options. Love that. Mm. And so when she said to me, if I had someone that came to me for a job as a young person and I looked at their, their, their units that they were doing at school, I would hire someone that was studying engineering over art because of the, the way in which she found benefit in an engineering mind. Mm. And so my grandfather, who is my hero, he was an engineer and an inventor. And, you know, growing up, I was around him and his drawings and engineering and mm -hmm. building. And, you know, he would teach me how he would see that there was a problem, how his drawing would be fixing that problem. Mm. And then how, when we would test the machine to see if it would work, how it was actually going to end up changing the world. And that really gave me the insight to be able to go, okay, well, this space, I mean, we haven't got to how I got into addiction yet, but yeah. by, the, by the time I did get into addiction, I realized that there is a massive gap for people who aren't yet so unwell that they need to go to hospital, mm. but also they need long-term support. And just like what you said, that uh, because there's a, not a lot of funding from government in drug and alcohol, the places that usually do provide drug and alcohol treatment, they're dingy, they're gross, they smell, they've got paint falling off the walls, they've got little plastic chairs that wobble and, you know, all of that. And true. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. And I remember working at this beautiful, incredible uh, rehab for people just released from prison. It's out in Parramatta. It's called Wayback. It's, I like, oh my God, I just, they're the best. I love them. Mm. Changed my life. But um, when I was there, I had a client, a new client come to me and sure, he'd been released from prison, but he'd been to a private school. He, you know, he yep. was, really up there in business and you know due to some decisions that he made he ended up in prison and then came out and he was just like Tara I can't stay in this place like mm. I can't be here this is just not me and I'm going that's great however <laughs> these are the rules and this yeah. is what we've got <laughs> so let's run with that you know um and so that's where I I I, I really leaned on my grandfather's way of thinking which was mm there's a problem here that no one seems to be sorting out. So I will. Yeah, love it. Yeah. So I guess to come back to your original question of how I ended up uh, working in addiction, a year and a half after I sent out all those empty CVs, I was back at uni doing my fifth year of psych. I was um, doing my first placement in a primary school, working with young mm -hmm. people. And I always thought that I was going to work in juvenile detention, like helping young mm. people to really shift and change the, their trajectory of life. Mm. Um, and I got a phone call <laughs> and a voicemail that said, oh, hi, yeah, we, um, we have the CV here from a little while ago. And I'm thinking that was a piece of paper that I mailed in the mail a year and a half ago and you weren't even open. <laughs> How do you? still have this piece of paper and in the in the thing they said can you give us a call because we're wondering if you still want a job and so I called them wow yeah 
I, it gets better. I called them and I said, oh, hi. Yeah. And, and she's like, oh, okay, great. Yeah. You, you know, we've got your CV and blah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And she said, um, are you still looking for a job? I said, sure. And she's gone, great. Can you start on Friday? I said, would you like to interview me? And she's like, oh, yeah, come in tomorrow. <laughs> so went in for this interview with an updated CV of all the extra things that I'd been doing between yeah. the time that I'd sent it. And yeah. And before I even sat down, she said, can you start on Friday? And I said, sure. Would you like to see my updated CV? Like, can we actually have a conversation here? (laughs) And yeah, she kind of flicked through and she's like, can you start on Friday? I said, yes, I can. What am I doing? And she's gone, I need someone to run the inpatient addiction program at the hospital because who we had lined up has fallen through and we need to fill this gap. Can you do it? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, within three weeks, I was in love. But interestingly, the first session that I sat in on, I had my judgment pants on. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I went into that group thinking addiction is just, a, you know, a, a, um, a, oh, what's that word? Like a willpower thing, you know? Yeah just sort your shit out and stop it already kind of vibe because I didn't have a lot of experience interacting with people with addiction uh, up until that point. I was having like physical reactions to some of the stories that were being shared and I was just thinking, oh, I think I've made a wrong decision here, but look, let's just give it a go and see what happens and I might be able to help these people. Yeah. Within three weeks... I realized that I was an absolute, am I allowed to swear in this podcast? Fuck yeah. Because <laughs> I was going to say that within three weeks, I realized that I was a fucking asshole and that I had no idea what I was talking about and that everything that I had in my um, frame of reference for what addiction was, was completely fucking false. Mm. And then it became fun because there was this puzzle of what's underneath this symptom this is really cool and it was great because every single client I mean I had some really challenging clients but every single one of them was in some way motivated for some kind of change yeah even if they weren't yet ready to go into recovery they were yeah. just ready to you know go from injecting to smoking or yeah. going from something to another substance you know to move through that harm minimization approach mm. and it made me realize like these guys are fucking awesome they're so smart and interesting and interested and mm. uh, like filled with life yeah. and I, I, I just, I just, I was like, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more. And yeah, from there, I, the universe just again, decided to hand me something that I should not have received, which was um, another hospital literally created a position for me because they wanted me so badly at that hospital. Um, And I then started running an addiction program there as well. And I was still at uni. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I said, the universe just decided that this is what I'm doing and I love it. I love it. Fantastic. No, and it's really good to hear like, and uh, this is like, 
again, one of the reasons why I was really keen to talk to you about that, because I had a feeling like that that was somewhat of your experience. Um, so, because this is the thing, right? Like um, I spend a lot of pe- time talking to people that have a lived experience. You know, I have a lived experience of got involved in um, addiction treatment um, or, you know, the space of drug and alcohol because of their experiences, Right. And there's always this sort of, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but, and it's something that I've actually shifted out of myself over the years. Like there's this like rhetoric of like, oh, well, I have the experience. So I know like what it's like. And I guess to, yeah, to some extent that's true, but also like the thing that I'm really interested to kind of hear from you is like from someone that's just been able to develop what they think from a blank canvas, you know, and, and sort of be detached from maybe their old like cognitive biases and experiences and stuff like that, because even though it's so valuable and I'm all about that, as everybody knows, listening to the show, but it, it can be um, something that holds you back as well because you become pre um, determined in your ideas about things and stuff. So what, what was it like, like just working it out as you go, you know, like you said something really interesting, like, did you recognize it as a symptom straight away? Is that how you understood it? You said that before that look at how they're responding to this, like with this symptom, you know, all that stuff. So yeah, I, I'm interested to hear how that process was for you. <laughs> The, the realizing it was a symptom was when I had that massive shift about three weeks in yeah, and was just getting super excited about life. And yeah. Yeah. That, that for me uh, was, was a big shift though. I guess I, I not so much now, you know, I'm kind of 10 years in to mm-hmm. my experience. So I guess people know, like, and trust me a little bit more. Yeah. But early on, people would say to me, so what What did you use? And I'm like, I barely even drink, like, nothing. <laughs> and, and, and they've gone, what, no drugs at all? I said, well, maybe three months of pot when I was in high school. Like, yeah. no. Yeah. And they're like, well, who are you to tell me how to get through this? You have no idea. And more often than not, it was also guys that were saying it to me. Yeah. And my automatic response was, well, I also don't have a penis. Does that mean that I can't work with a guy? <laughs> right? Like that's that's the reality. You know, if if I if I make the and I guess this might be a bit of what you were talking about, that some yeah. people in recovery, they come in um and either they haven't done enough work on themselves yet to be able to separate. Mm. Or, or there could be other biases and things. So if I make the room about me and what I know, yeah. I'm not doing a very good job. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not the expert in the room. Yeah. Whoever's in front of me is the expert in their life. Yeah. I'm just simply the guide. And that's therapist 101 really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's really interesting that you brought up that, you know, for the most part, a lot of drug and alcohol workers are in recovery themselves or have Mm. some kind of lived experience themselves. And the amount, like I cannot even tell you the percentage, it's got to be high. When I was in inpatient long-term rehab, 
uh, that people sort of around the four to six month mark would say to me, Tara, I know exactly what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I'd be like, here we go. And they'd go, I'm going to go to TAFE and do a drug and alcohol counseling course. And I'm going to help everybody else like you help me. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not. Stop it. Because by doing that now, then what you're doing is instead of looking in, you're looking out and you're pausing, you're stunting your own work and your own growth and your own wellness mm. by focusing on other people. And that's the same thing that happens with, with drug and alcohol use is rather yeah. than focusing in and going, all right, what's actually happening here in my environment or my situation or the way that I'm thinking or, you know, uh, my circumstances, I'm going to look out for my solution rather mm. than in. So it's the same kind of thing. When you become a therapist, you're focused on someone else. And mm. it, it's it's a really great distraction if you don't want to focus on yourself. Mm. So I would always say to clients when they'd go to me, oh, I'm, you know, I've decided I'm going to do that. I'm like, okay, great. In five years, then revisit it and see whether or not you still want to work in the drug and alcohol field. Because then yeah. You will have had enough times to fall on your face and pick yourself back up again. You will have had enough opportunity to do the therapy and the work to really understand who you are and what's important to you. Because I talk to clients all the time, in my opinion, um, early recovery is the first 12 months of change. Yeah. And in that first 12 months of change, we don't want to be making really life-changing decisions because mm. really we're just relearning how to feel. So like, let's just breathe, <laughs> you know, remove yourself from toxic environments. Absolutely. Remove yourself from unhealthy relationships. Absolutely. But changing your career or changing, you know, buying a house or selling a house or, you know, those sorts of things, let's just breathe. Because mm. in 12 months time, if you still want to do it, it's not like you've lost anything. Yeah. That's interesting. Like, and, and it's, and this is exactly what I want to do with the show. Cause it's interesting to hear, people's perspectives and and very similarly to what you're saying I, I think you know there's elements of that for me that I, I agree with as well and it's like this isn't a shameless plug everyone but it's part of like why we're trying to do um, I don't know if you've seen it as well I've been posting about it a little bit more but we're trying to put together this thing called the experience matters collective um, and we're trying to professionalize the lived experience workforce to do just exactly that you know because so for me I have, I, I went and did the TAFE course at, I think I was 18 months or something, or, or maybe I was just after 12 months. I, I can't remember when I started doing it. It was after 12 months, maybe just after or a bit longer. And I eventually decided that I wanted to do that. But there was lots of kind of mistakes that I definitely made along the way. It was very empowering to me to be encouraged to do that. But also there were so many people of my friends that, um, didn't end up doing that and kind of like, not that there's ever a waste of time, but, you know, spent like five grand or whatever it is to do a TAFE course more um, and, you know, a couple of years plus of their life, like doing this thing that they didn't, that they weren't really kind of passionate about. Um, and I, I think, I think that's right. I think there, there needs to be two kind of, um, uh, acknowledge the power that lived experience has it needs to be formalized but also to separate therapeutic work from 
um, like lived experience work in that format, you know, um, because yeah, that it, it is such an interesting thing. If, if you are going in to do a therapy style session, you do have to be able to separate your experience and make it about the other person, you know? hundred percent. And I guess that's the thing. So I, uh, I kind of more like align with the smart recovery model. Mm. So I was um, in that second hospital that, that created the job for me, their, their framework was 12 step kind of abstinence based yep. um, recovery. So I was really lucky in the very mm. early stages of my career. So at that beginning kind of formative part to learn both sides yep. and, to see and experience the the way that people interact with both sides. Mm -hmm. So I, I took it upon myself to um, go to an NA meeting and, uh, you know, I, I was really uh, grateful that uh, a, a dear friend of mine who attended that group for a long time, yeah. he, he invited me to come along and I just thought that was fantastic. And what I recall um, from the kind of, 12-step meeting space is mm. that that's more where the lived experience is the part is the main part of the process yeah because it's about telling the story and about connecting on similarities within the 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 story of it yeah and that is very different to therapy yeah Therapy is about, all right, what are the underlying beliefs? What are the unhelpful thinking styles? What's your automatic ne negative self-talk? Where are the, mm. uh, you know, unhelpful boundaries happening? How do you maintain your boundaries? How do you communicate effectively, right? Like they're all the, that's more what therapy is. Mm. And the, I guess that's what's so beautiful about having the opportunity to uh, interact and experience all different aspects of it. Mm. You know, I'm, I, I said to you very honestly that I align more with a smart recovery model, though yeah. I have a client in front of me that says, you know what, I went to this AA meeting or I went to this NA meeting or I'm thinking about going to one, would you recommend it? I say to them, go and experience it for yeah. like three or four weeks and come back and tell me what your experience is because... Mm we're not going to know what's right for us until we touch it and smell it and experience it. For a That's while. right. Couldn't agree more. And I think like, I don't know, and I'm interested to hear perspective, but I think that's where we have to get just in the whole professional thing. And, it, and it's something that I'm big on. Like at the moment, I just feel like in the sector, we just like attack each other, whether it's because of competitive, like funding streams, um, and organizations like battling for, for grants or whatever it is, or whether it's because, yeah, there's different philosophies kind of colliding or whether it's because I have a lived experience or you don't have a lived experience. Like every, like maybe I'm just looking at this negatively, not everyone's like that, but there can be a lot of that like adversarial clashes that go on. And I just wish that like, yeah, we could just be kind of more, cohesive and see how we could like work together and and just like you said like everybody's different that's the biggest thing that i've learned because i came from thinking everybody needed to do this like one size fits all thing like that's where i started and and i've ended up in a lot different place but um uh yeah like have you found that like as someone that doesn't have a lived experience like have you found that i don't know like yeah felt 
at any time, like you, you're not welcome to be doing the work or something like that? Or is that like a bit negative? I, I don't know. Like, what is it like in, in that perspective? Well, I've never felt that I'm not good enough to do the work. I've never been made to feel that way, um, which has is really, really great. I've, awesome. I've always been welcomed um, anywhere that I've gone, yep. which, you know, is super, super privileged to, to have had that experience. Um, in an organisational level and also in a, uh, a philosophy-like level, yep. Yep. I definitely see that. Yeah. Um, one thing that I guess is interesting is that I mostly see it from the from people who are really in ingrained within the twelve step space. Interesting. Yeah. For example, you can look at Russell Brand. Yeah. So he is um, has been. I, well, I, I don't know if he's changed now, but it, uh, up until probably the last 12 months, I, I haven't really been following him that much over the last sort of 12 months. Though up until that point, I know that he's been rallying to try and stop methadone at, in the UK because harm minimization doesn't work. Yeah, and it's like oh, there's a lot, there's a lot more gray area than I think you're you're open to seeing. Yeah. And when when we have a really staunch stance on something, then mm. you know we can we can start to do things like researchers bias. Mm. So we only hear the pieces of information that support our own belief around the thing. Yeah. And um, you know we surround ourselves with people that also think similarly. So it just yeah. means that all of a sudden it it becomes quite. Um, this isn't the word I want to use, but right now I'm not thinking of another word, but like mob-like, you know? Yeah, yeah. Whoosh, and this is the only way and we've got to do it this way. And I go, no, well, actually, I'm getting pretty good results and I don't do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so interesting. Love it. Um, like, let me rapid fire a couple, couple of questions from someone that that is kind of working with people hand-to-hand combat, I call it, and has the study experience behind it and and i love that you brought up the russell brand thing because i'm sort of it's funny right i I don't know if you know and people listening to this know as well but like i started in like i got i'm forever grateful for what everything that's happened so far in my journey because i've had an amazing like nearly 10 years of recovery and life changing and stuff but i was heavily involved in the 12-step thing right still think it's great just exactly how you articulated it. Like if people have a good experience with it, awesome, go. And fucking, I think actually like you can't deny that it also is the biggest kind of thing available for people to go to. What's that? Been around the longest. That's right. That's right. And so already it's got longevity and it's, it's the, the kind of marketing of no like and trust me. Yeah. The majority of American drug and alcohol policy comes from the 12 steps. Yeah, 100%. Whereas the Australian drug policy is harm minimization. That's right. It's very different. Yeah. 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 And and so, so yeah, so, uh, like, it's funny because I've kind of had this whole um, change and I guess somewhere along my journey there was different things that I just kind of – saw or thought or didn't agree with and and it's been so weird to like come out of like such an intense belief system structure Mm. to something else and then 
like it's so strange i i can't describe it but anyway um so there's all like that but i'm tipping that you don't believe in like the disease of addiction concept that's right yeah so do you believe that people if they're addicted that they could for instance go back to drinking socially again i believe that there's not a a one-size-fits-all situation. Yeah. And my framework, uh, you know, at the Tara Clinic, I I have an outpatient program called Empowered Recovery. And I called it Empowered Recovery because I want to empower people to be able to make a real decision for themselves, for their own well-being. Yeah. And if someone feels that the effort that it would take to stop after one or two drinks is so much that it's just not worth it because they're not going to enjoy the experience anyway. Yeah. Then they can be empowered to choose abstinence. Yeah. And I, my main focus is to ensure that no longer in your life is your main focus or what drives your behavior, drink or drug use. Mm. Because what I've noticed in my experience um, over the years is that when people come to me who are wanting to stop using or drinking, Mm -hmm. their main focus is on um, going to events in order to drink. So I'm going out for drinks rather than I'm meeting friends. I'm going out for this boozy lunch instead of meeting friends. So the focus of all of the activities are an an opportunity to drink or use. Mm. Then when people in the very early stages who choose to completely stop and and move towards abstinence, um, the main focus is I'm not going to drink. Mm. I'm not going to drink at this place or I'm not going to use at this party, or I'm not going to whatever it is. And that still hasn't resulted in change because now your whole world is focused on not doing the thing, which means that the subject is still the thing. So your whole mindset is still focused on the thing. And when we do that, our brain doesn't hear the don't part. So what happens is, is we're constantly like gripping and holding to try and not use the thing, but our brain, all it's hearing, instead of don't drink, or I'm not going to drink, or I'm no longer drinking, or I don't drink anymore. All it's hearing is drink, 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 drink. So when you do drink again, the shift hasn't happened in terms of our mindset and our relationship with ourselves and with drugs and alcohol. Mm. But we go straight back to the old way of doing things because we've practiced that the most and we're really good at it. Fantastic way of ex- explaining it. I've, I haven't heard someone explain it like that before, but I, I really like it. Um, so it's more about, I guess, what you're teaching people to know because that's always the question that I get from people when I – because. Like, you know, I believe, again, very similar to you. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm. Um, part of it that is really hard for people is that you have to just shift your paradigm in the way that you think about addiction and drugs and alcohol altogether. Mm. Um, but then people always ask me, well, well, how do I know when I've changed my relationship to alcohol 
and drugs. And I think that's a really great way to explain it. It's like, where's your, fo- is your focus on whether it's going out to drink or going out to not drink, then your focus is still on the, the substance. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I want people to live a full, rich and meaningful life. And you can't do that if all you're focused on is one thing. Yeah. That's yeah. just shit, really. <laughs> so so that's interesting. So, um, okay. So then with that, then there's also another prominent figure. So that disease kind of concept, I guess, is something that Russell Brand talks about um, and, and he's about. Uh, and then there's another prominent figure that um, says, the root cause of of all addiction is trauma, right? Gabor Matei. (laughs) Yeah. Like, what do you think about that? Well, there's this really awesome uh, YouTube clip. Uh, I can, I can send it to you so you can pop it in the, in the thing below, which I think is great. Uh, it's it's talking about the autonomic nervous system. So really yep. like getting into the brain and understanding that when we learn our really big lessons around safety and security, mm. it gets stored in the kind of ug-ug bit of our brain. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what it does is it replays the message over and over again. Mm. Either we are safe or we are not safe or whatever it may be. Yeah. And when we think about the way that we understand what trauma actually is now, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a specific event that's happened to us. Mm-hmm. It's actually our experience of whatever the event may have been. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I could experience trauma from not being picked up at, from school one day because someone forgot whose turn it was to pick me up, right? Mm, mm. I, I, I may not have had the, the resourcefulness or resilience or whatever to be able to handle that. And that could have mm. resulted in me feeling traumatized. If I was another individual at the same age, the same situation, it may not be traumatic. It's, it's exactly the same thing as, you know, some people went to war, love it. Other people go to war, really impacts them negatively. Mm-hmm. And our, our perception of life is massively impactful. So we, we need skills, we need resilience, and we also need to understand what our perception is. Mm-hmm. And when you look at this this video clip that I'll, I'll link to you, it talks about how you know the majority of what um, what underlies health conditions like you know diabetes and auto, um, autoimmune diseases and you know all these different things. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. Just kind of flagging that. But <laughs> um, <laughs> you know all of these things are underlined by trauma. And there's this really great questionnaire and study that was done um, to, to find your ACEs. So diabetes, how is diabetes underlined? So I'm just trying to get it in my head. How is diabetes underlined by trauma? Yeah. So when, uh, I wish I had my little thing of the brain, but basically I describe the brain as in three parts. So mm-hmm. you've got the back bit up in here in the back of your head and mm-hmm. it's the part that keeps you alive deals with your heart rate, your core temperature, needing to pee and poo, sex drive, all the real, like, keep me alive as a species kind mm-hmm. of thing, yeah? Then at the front bit, this is the part which is very, like, human-y. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, um, logical thinking, problem-solving, 
conflict management, um, yeah. language, all the stuff that's really human like that's up the front. And then in the middle, attached to the bit that keeps us alive, that's where our fight, flight, freeze, faint, fawn response is. And in that part of the brain, it squirts out what I call mush, which is basically a whole heap of chemicals that either switches off everything I don't need to run away or fight the tiger, mm -hmm. and switches on everything I do need to run away or fight the tiger. So I don't need my nervous, um, my uh, uh, my reproductive system when I'm fighting a tiger. I don't need my digestive system when I'm fighting a tiger. I don't need my uh, immune system when I'm fighting a tiger. I don't need my logical thinking when I'm fighting a tiger, right? All these things that are more for our longevity of mm -hmm. well-being and health and wellness, they're the things that get switched off when we are stressed. Mm. So when we have chronic stress, that means that our immune system is off for the most part. So that's when we start getting all of those little niggly things, you know, we're not healing very well. We're not managing, like our brain isn't being healed while we sleep because we're probably not sleeping very well. Um, you know, heart, heart and lungs are, are healed while we sleep. And if we're not sleeping and we're not healing, then we end up with, you know, cardiovascular issues. Yeah. So, um, I, as I said, I'm not a doctor, so I can't specifically state to you why trauma underlines diabetes or if that's even a thing as that specific example. Mm. But that's basically what's happening when, um, when we are under threat. Mm. The things that we don't need right there and then to stay alive get switched off because all the energy needs to be put into life-saving energy. Yeah, got it, got it. So, so... You would, so with that definition of trauma, you would probably then subscribe is it by the sounds of it to like the cause of addiction is trauma. I don't like to say that anything causes anything. Right. So I guess I'm being a little bit political here <laughs> and, and, and um, dodging, dodging the question because I guess realistically everybody's experience is their own and it is valid. Mm. And, you know, if we think about Rat Park, for instance, it, have, you, have you seen the, yeah. the documentary on Rat, rat Park? Yeah. yeah. Where they, um, they put, you know, one rat in a cage on its own with cocaine-laced water or heroin-laced water and normal mm. water, and it basically killed itself through overdose. Mm -hmm. And then the scientist was going, well, hang on a second. This rat is all on its own so it's probably bored so let's give it rat park where it has mm. rats and it has you know all the things to play with and whatever and it never drank the heroin or cocaine laced water because mm. it was enjoying life so it doesn't necessarily mean that trauma causes addiction but the, if we want to look at how may it feel to be stuck in a cage on your own that in itself is pretty traumatic because we are social animals. We enjoy connection. We live for connection. You know, one of the beautiful things from the 12-step program that I love is they are always say addiction is the opposite of connection. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, you could you could label that, I guess, as trauma if you're if you're isolated from your family or things like that. <laughs> but it comes back to an evolutionary thing. If I was you know, um, uh, kicked out of my group 
back in the Ugg Ugg days when there were saber-toothed tigers trying to kill me, I'd probably die. So I'm going to try and sneak myself in with any kind of group that I can. And if I'm not feeling heard or validated or, or connected to by the people around me, but if I'm drinking with my mates at the pub or if I'm using meth with my mates after school or if I'm, you know, whatever it is, then I'm now a part of something. Mm. So the substance itself can be actually the, um, the the catalyst for connection, not to mention that it's the most intimate relationship that you'll ever have in your life with mm. your substance. You know, it's the first thing you think of when you wake up. It's the thing you spend most of your time doing while you're awake. And then when you're going to sleep, it's the last thing you're thinking about in terms of how you're going to plan for the next day. Yeah. Right. So that's a very intimate relationship. I don't even think about my fiance that much, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So when, when you're moving away from such an intimate relationship, it's really important to remember that grief is actually a big part of that process. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like my answer to your question has probably kind of gone wandering about in all different directions. Yeah. Was that even remotely useful? Yeah. A hundred percent. So so in working with all the people that you do in the Tara clinic, like what do you see? Because the reason why I'm asking you these things is because it's definitely my feedback that I've found for me personally. And so many other people tell me the same thing as well is that like when you're in the grips of it, you just want to know what the fuck is wrong with you and why, you know what I mean? Like it's a, like if you think about any other medical condition, and you go to hospital that's life-threatening and and they say, listen, you're in trouble. You could die, but we don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> and and we, we can't explain to you how this happens, you know, and, and what's going on in your body and cycle. And you just like, you would be like, you would freak out, you know, like even if you have cancer, at least you know that you've got cancer and then you've got to do this, 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 that, this, 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 these are the best therapies, treatments. And we have some of that stuff. I'm over dramatizing it, but yeah, it's such a big thing that people just want to know, like, why is this happening to me? What's wrong with me? And also like you go to different services. I don't know if you agree, but one place will tell you that you got a disease. Another place will tell you it's your mental health. Another place will say, oh, it's, um, it's, uh, tra- it's trauma. Another place will say, oh, it's because of your social determinants of help, health and we've got to help you to get like a job and do like, so yeah, like what, what have you found are the, the most like common things for people when they present? Sorry, big question. I know I'm just, I'm pretty much getting you to tell me what addiction is <laughs> and answer <laughs> the questions of the world. <laughs> <laughs> To me, to me, but I look at things very differently to to the industry, which is why the Tara Clinic is so different. Yeah. To me, it's every single bloody one of those things. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to have a holistic approach and understanding. Mm. So the very first session in the Empowered Recovery Program is literally learning about the brain Mm -hmm. and how 
what you're feeling in your mm. body is actually your body responding to the way that your brain is perceiving the situation. Mm-hmm. And once you know that a craving isn't going to kill you, that um, you know a craving only lasts for seven minutes. However, the only thing that's stronger than your brain chemistry is your mind. So if you focus on it, it will last forever. Mm-hmm. And through distraction and you know all these different things that you can do, you can actually change and rewire your brain mm-hmm. to then respond to your experiences of your of your physical sensations, like trembling or sweating or pain or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, you just I have so many clients say to me, I love how you've empowered me to understand my body, my brain and my mind. Mm-hmm. And it is not until we can truly do that, that I think change is even possible. Yeah. Because the more question marks and, you know, so there's another program that I've recently launched, um, which is called Demystifying Addiction. And I called it that because one of my clients who... Uh, you know, came to see me um, was an IV drug user um, injecting methamphetamines multiple times a day in a week and uh, came to see me within kind of three, four months had stopped all use and Mm -hmm. chosen abstinence from methamphetamine for that since then, and it's almost like a year and a half now. What, 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 when I was talking to him about like the whole situation, I was like, so what, what was it that you, that, that helped you? Like what, what out of this whole process helped you? And the thing that he said was you demystified addiction for me. Everyone else was telling me how scary it is and all the risks and all the blah and whatever. And you just told me that it's my brain dealing with whatever's going on in my body and then my perception of that being all whack and now I can just look at the same sensations differently and go oh I'm tired or oh I'm actually really hungry when was the last time I ate you know and then that's just allowed him to be like okay well I now no longer need to use because I've got other stuff that I can manage the situation with a hell of a lot better and it doesn't come back. Mm, so interesting. I love hearing that stuff around the inner workings of what you actually do for people in the practice. Cause I, th- I think that's something that, you know, people also ask all the time, like whether they're thinking about the traditional methods, like with rehab um, or whatever, they're like, well, what do you, what do you actually do? <laughs> and, and, and it is that, isn't it? It's, it's actually retraining your brain, your behaviors um, and your emotional patterns into yeah. something different. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, the, the thing, so this is another thing that I, I really like to, to teach my clients is, and now hopefully the community is that a big part of what substance use does is it teaches us to practice instant gratification mm. because when you have a drink or a smoke or you inject or you snort or whatever it is, it's an pretty well an instantaneous shift in your mood mm. because you are experiencing a mood-altering substance, right? Mm. Or if it's gambling, it's a mood-altering behavior or sex or food or whatever it is, right? It's the same for everything. So... When you start to go, okay, 
if I'm really well practiced at instant gratification, then a big part of my learning process is going to be frustrating because of how long it takes to actually do the work. Mm. And people freak out when I say to them, early recovery is the first 12 months of change. Mm. And then you're still just a baby, you Mm. know, like this is really, really early, like super early. So um, there's this, it's, it's not about being impatient because impatient is very different to instant gratification. A big part of what the research has shown is that you need at least between 12 to 18 months of active work in recovery for the the longer lasting change. So that's why, you know, for me, uh, the majority of my individual clients see me for, you know, well, gosh, I've got clients that I've had for over two years because they just want to keep sort of checking in. But my programs are like 16 months long because it takes that length of time to Mm. allow your brain the... The, the time to practice something new, mm. right? We're really well practiced at when we feel a craving, we drink or use straight away. Or when we feel angry, we punch a wall straight away. Or when we feel mm. an urge to have sex, we masturbate straight away. Like it's about um, spreading out the curve, I guess, a little bit and mm. allowing us the opportunity to go, actually, I can just breathe for three seconds and that might just sort out this problem that I've got. Yeah. 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 I love it. I love it. So just changing tax a little bit. um, Very interesting conversation, by the way, have you got a little bit longer? If I, I, I've got a few more questions. Is that okay? Absolutely. Let me just triple check that (laughs) no one is trying to reach me. So yes, absolutely. I'm all yours. So so um, just switching it over a little bit, because I think this is something interesting to talk about as well. And, and maybe this is more for people that are working in the sector um, or people that are just interested or maybe just in general. But so with what you do, are you a private practice? Okay. A private practice in psychology land yeah. Is an individual psychologist who is a sole trader who has their own clients and that's kind of that. Yeah. I would not say that that's me. However, mm-hmm. I am in the private sector. Uh-huh. My clients pay for the service themselves through their own means of funding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, where do you uh, and like there's a reasoning behind this question. So sorry if it's without notice. Um, but but where do you, how does that sit with you or where does that land? Because I guess like there is a big thing like in the, I would probably just say the social services altogether yep. that they maybe, maybe, you know, because I have a private service as well. So maybe it's coming from my projections or something. Um, but yeah, like there seems to be, tell me if you feel like there's something different and an idea that, you know, you shouldn't charge people to do this kind of work and all that sort of stuff. Like, would you agree with that, that there is that kind of sentiment, I guess is the word I'm looking for. People in the helping profession are usually some of the most selfless people of this earth and they've got to be because they're spending 
their precious hours helping solve other people's problems, mm. whether it's medically or um, mental health-wise or addiction or all of those things. Mm. Mm. And if we can just pause on the idea that um, that it's inappropriate to charge for drug and alcohol services, let's zoom out and look at other helping professions. Mm-hmm. We have um, surgeons who mm. charge a lot of money to do a job that helps to solve a problem for a person. We have other helping professionals such as, you know, security guards or in-home care or those sorts of things that also Mm. charge money to support and provide um, care for other people. When I first started my business journey with the Tara Clinic, Mm. I went through the NICE program. So NICE stands for New Enterprise Incentive Scheme. And in that program, I received, I, so I did a, a certificate for a new small business. I had 12 months of mentoring and I also had some financial support throughout that from the government. And for the first um, six months, I was being mentored uh, by the person who was teaching the, the course. Mm. And he kept saying to me, Tara, what is your problem with profit? <laughs> And I was just like, no, it's not allowed to profit from someone else's vulnerability. No. And he kept saying to me, and it took him six months for me to hear the message and not argue it. And then it took me probably another year and a half to actually realize that it's true. Mm. He said to me, if you don't have a sustainably profitable business, you will not have a business. And if you don't have a business, how can you help someone? Mm. And it really helped me to understand, oh, I'm not profiting from someone's vulnerability. I'm offering a service that someone may or may not be able to afford. And if they're unable to afford that, there are heaps of free services that are available. They Mm. might just be different to what the Tara Clinic offers. Mm And with every decision that we make throughout our life, whether it's about what kind of therapy we do or where we're going to go for lunch or who we end up being with for the rest of our lives or not, um, all of those things are like like a fork in the road. Every decision that we make leads us in a different direction. It's kind of like that movie. Oh, what's that movie? Sliding Doors. Mm. When if you, I have ne- never actually watched the movie. I know. I just know the saying because I'm into AFL football and this guy writes an article every uh, Thursday about the sliding doors of each team. So I'm, I'm, I'm familiar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I've never seen the movie either. Yeah. Yeah. So basically what it's talking about is the idea that if when when she gets on the plane on the train she finds out that her partner was cheating on her because she gets home and sees him if she doesn't get on the train then that doesn't happen and then then it watches her two lives kind of go on from just that moment of either getting on the train or missing the train and that is a very important thing with with everything that we do is Mm. if I'm going to make the choice to invest in myself, then I I have these options. 
if I'm not in a position to be able to invest in myself, or perhaps I don't feel worthy of investing in myself or whatever it may be, then I have this list of options. Mm. It's just about working out what's right for you. Plus, yeah. you know, if you're asking me specifically about the Tara Clinic, the Tara Clinic's business model is very closely uh, aligned to Elon Musk and the Tesla car model thing. Mm-hmm. So um, we work with people who are successful, who are high functioning and who have the funding to be able to, um, to, to uh, finance their own therapy. And all the profits that we receive from all of that actually goes towards building the next program to be able to make it even more affordable for the next person. Mm. So the overall um, you know, model of the Tara Clinic is it's actually a seven pillar plan to change the world. Four of those are profitable businesses to fund the three non-for-profit organizations that I want to build because mm. I don't want to be reliant on government grants and funding because I don't want to be a part of that argumentative nature that you brought up before because it's not whenever I speak to other organizations now as you know the founder of the Tara Clinic the first thing that I say to them is I'm so grateful to be able to speak to someone else who's in this family because we're not in competition there's not enough beds or services at the best of times and it's so great to have finally found another service that I can refer to if I need to and that's and when I start off conversations like that with other organizations, they're usually going, yeah, me too. I'm so glad that I know about you. Oh, I've got all these people that I can send you that's on our waiting list because their waiting list is really long because it's free. Mm, love it. So interesting you say that. Like, um, and again, I, I've been I've been saying this the last few shows, but it it is uncomfortable for me to talk about. I, I get uncomfortable, I must admit, um, talking about different stuff. So I guess it's still an insecurity for me. Um, Are you but, uncomfortable talking about money? No, not really. It's it's more, I'll, I'll explain in a second, but um, I've been encouraged by people that just sort of help me with different things and mentor me, I suppose. Um, they've been saying the last few, for the last few shows, like, your show's great, Jack, but you need to really start putting out there what you think and asking people like some 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 questions about some topics that you know you really um, have on your mind because that's what your show's meant to be all about is like real you know it's called real drug talk like talk about it open and honest and I'm like oh fuck um, so so but it's interesting you say that because I think it's because um, like. It's interesting, right? I when I came into the space, um, I actually started in a private place, um, and uh, I was young and um, really wanted to like help the world. But I was I was kind of young in like my recovery as well. Like uh, if I think about myself at 21, 22, when I started, 22, 23, maybe when I started in all this stuff, I was a great guy but I was a fucking idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like a little, I was like a little puppy bouncing off the walls. Anyway, um, did heaps of great stuff, but made, made some kind of personal mistakes to myself as well. And um, uh, learned a lot from it. Nothing terrible, but yeah, just didn't feel kind of great about it anyway. So, but yeah, I've gone through this whole journey and I, I find that maybe I, I think a little bit different about 
lots of stuff um, than maybe the the group, if you like, or the overall like sentiment and thinking. And just recently, like we we started a um, an organization, um, the Experience Matters Collective, and the intention is really not to just line our pockets, but we've set it up as a um, a, a for-profit thing on purpose because we wanted to I, i've just had this horrible experience not criticizing anyone that's in that system um but of like the government services and the whole structure and the funding streams and all that stuff and just the immense amount of problems that happen systemically towards like making the change that i want to and in my mind, the best way to do it is in this administrative structure that we have set up. And it's, and it's really interesting. And I copped really, it really fucking hurt my feelings. I copped a, 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 a bunch of criticism, like off some people um, that I heard like through the grapevine. Um, and it's just got me really interested at first. I was like, like a little wounded animal, <laughs> you know, but it's it and then it kind of kicked me into like thinking well like actually we need to just have like a whole shift in the way that we think about all of this stuff because that has exactly been my experience as well is that a hundred percent like i'm for it and we need it but the reality at the moment is that there's not enough funding as it is for the services and then um in my perspective i see a lot of services they go after different grants and stuff that maybe they don't necessarily believe in or that they don't want to deliver because they want to get enough money for the things that they want to do so then they're like skimming off the different revenue streams for the different things putting them into other revenue buckets the thing that they got the money for maybe isn't running on full cylinders. It didn't have enough money funded anyway, but then they're like skimming out of it too. Um, then the thing that they're doing is kind of skimming out of it as well. People are underpaid and it's just this whole like cesspool of like shit, you know? And, and, and that's for anyone listening, that's in no way criticizing the people that work in the system. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just, talking about the system but yeah it's really interesting when you actually peel it back and just get beyond like the philosophy and just look at what happens it's it's interesting i don't know and that's been my journey with it so i love hearing what other people how other people came you know come to that kind of process in that place well it's it's for me personally it's been a lot of business coaching and it's yeah. a lot of money mindset management yeah. One of my favorite books of all time, it's by a, a woman named Jen Sincero, S-I-N-C-E-R-O, and it's called You're a Badass at Making Money. I've read that. <laughs> Isn't it awesome? Yeah, she cracks me up. I know, she's the best. But what I love about that book is when you actually stop and do the exercises at the end of each of the chapters, mm. holy shit. It just opens up the, well, for me anyway, it opened up my eyes to how my view on money, both within the system as well as personally, as mm. well as business, uh, is impacted by my unhealthy belief systems. Mm. And there, when, when we think about um, addiction and the instant gratification-ness of it, right, what we need to remember is that that leans in to entitlement. Mm. 
when we're very, very ingrained within our using, the entitled nature is very strong. Mm -hmm. And it is very strong because we feel like if I don't get this or do this, I could die. Yeah. It literally feels like that. That's how it's described to me is a craving. When it's really big, it feels like I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And that's because the part of your brain that deals with cravings is the part that's your threat response. So it does actually think you're going to die. Mm-hmm. So when, when we think about, you know, life-saving energy and life-saving situations, we think about ambulances, we think about our medical system, and all of those things are technically free. However, if you really look at what you get for that free service, you don't really get that much. Mm. It's not until you start to move into the private sector that you actually get the longer-term sort of treatment and support or um, quite often it could be you know if if you don't have um, health insurance and you don't have a, um, a health care card a, a ride in an ambulance costs four hundred dollars so if you have a health care card it's free if you don't and you don't have health insurance it's not mm-hmm. but there's this belief that an ambulance will come to me when I'm sick and I need them in that moment and it will be free because it's part of my right as a, as a citizen. And it's important, I guess, that we understand that nothing is actually free. You know, uh, if, if, I, if I take myself back to the 90s and I think about Silverchair's song, uh, oh, crap, what's the song called? I don't know, it's in their Frog Stomp album where, where he, said, he says something along the lines of um, uh, you, you say that money isn't, isn't everything, but I'd, I'd like to see you live like a king without it, you know? <laughs> uh, how, like, how can you live your life without money? Mm. Every time we drive the car, it's money. Every time we get on a bus, that's money. Every time we turn on a light, that's money. Like money is actually a very very big part of our society and whether we like it or not it's just the truth Mm. so yeah understanding your money mindset is a really really helpful thing because it allows us to then become really grateful for what we do have Mm. and what we can receive in different ways yeah okay and we're back sorry everyone if that was a bit distorted we um got sucked into the black hole of uh, the Zoom universe there um, and everything just decided to crash. So that's how it happens, 2020 and onwards. Um, no, but that, like what we were just talking about, which was like the privatization stuff, the, you know, it is a really interesting conversation. It's, it's super hard to talk about because it's so much like anything though, but there's so much like context that goes within it. Um and I, I, I think one of the things that hasn't helped, which you can't deny that is true, is that unfortunately there has been some dodgy operators in the space, which has kind of wrecked it for everyone, you know? Um, so, like, I am a real fan of um, regulation and, and stuff like that to help bring things up, you know? Like, one, one of my major concerns, though, is, is that we just don't have a system that promotes like innovation um, and because it's, I don't know, people probably argue with me about that, but 
like I, I feel like incentive breeds that innovation, um, incentive to compete, to, to change, to do better, to offer something different. The reason why the tar, the Tara clinic exists with that different approach. And, you know, like it's, it's this, it's, it's something that's incentivized to provide the service that people want. And then on the, on the end, on the end user side, the consumers of the services are the ones that benefit really well in theory anyway. So yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think, I think there is a lot involved in it. Mm. And realistically, unless, okay. The main reason that I wanted to start in, in a situation where I could fund myself. So I'm not backed by any investors. Everything mm. that I've done has been just solely through the success of my practice mm. and uh when when i first was looking at creating what i originally wanted to do which was the rehab for people just released from prison that's my that's my favorite population i like mm. i just there's there's such there's such a need there for people to have real help um to just stop re recidivism in its tracks um but anyway that's another conversation though <laughs> Uh, what, what I realized was there's some big wigs in the world of government funding mm. and not a lot of little players ha kind of get an edge in because they either don't have the resources to be able to put together the grant in such a way that, um, that it will get noticed by, by the people on the other side or they don't have the facilities in the same way as what the big players do. But even more than that, and this is one of the things that I learned when I was working at Wayback, because that was the first time that I was really involved in how government funding impacts an organization. Mm. And I, I realized that the pot of money that exists for drug and alcohol treatment doesn't change if someone new comes in. What it means is it's just redistributed mm. in different percentages. Mm. And I didn't like the idea of taking funding away from another organization. That to me was the main driver for having the Tara Clinic as a profitable business because I want to be able to fund my own growth and development and support of the community and changing the, you know, I really want the Tara Clinic to be the Beyond Blue of addiction mm -hmm. because the way that Beyond Blue really shifted and disrupted the way that Australia views depression and anxiety has significantly changed the framework of and foundation of our nation. Mm. And I think that there needs to be a real, um, a, a, a real host of that in, in, our, in our society, but doing it right. And I feel like, you know, there's no right or wrongs here, but I feel like I'm doing it really well because I look at things from an outsider's perspective with all of my years of training in mental health to be able to go, oh, 
hang on, this is what the actual problem is, like everything that we spoke about earlier on in this podcast, you know, um, rather than just helping someone to stop using, help them to actually live. And, mm. and if we can start using that kind of messaging in our schools, in our corporate environments, in everywhere, in TV, in movies, in mm. then we're going to see a really big shift in the way that society views addiction and its treatment. A hundred percent. Hey, super interesting conversation. That's why I wanted to have you on for so long. So it was a pleasure to finally do it. I appreciate it. Um, so much for having me. Now, whereabouts in uh, Sydney town? Are you in Sydney? You're in Sydney, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Bondi. Bondi. Okay. So if people want to find you, where's the best place for them to, um, to get a hold of the Tara Clinic and pick up what you're putting down? <laughs> yeah. Well, really, uh, all of the social media played well, not all of them. Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, they're kind of the places where if you type in at the Tara Clinic, mm-hmm. then then you'll find me. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the website, thetaraclinic.com, so T-H-E-T-A-R-A-C-L-I-N-I-C.com. And, uh, yeah, you can either, uh, you know, get started straight away with some of our free resources or join up the, um, the low-fee membership, weekly membership, um, to access the sort of self-directed learning options, or you can book a free call with us to organize a chat around what's going to be the best option for you. Cool. Hey, thanks so much, mate. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back on soon. Uh, yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have an awesome, awesome day and keep doing the great work you're doing. Thanks, mate. See ya. Bye. All right, good people. That was another episode of Real Drug Talk. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. I really love chatting to Tara. Her enthusiasm and passion just really shone through for me in the interview. And they're the kinds of people that we want um, on the front lines, helping other people to change their life and, and, and turn things around. So fantastic. Um, we'll make sure that we have her details in the show notes below. Um, if you or somebody that you love needs help uh, beating addiction, We run an outpatient program called Connection Based Living and we help people to transform their lives out of addictive patterns without having to go to rehab. Um, So if that's of interest to you, you can visit www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. Otherwise, we would love it if you left us... Look, I'm just asking you for things here. We would would love it if you left us a five-star review and a a bit of a um, paragraph on what you enjoy about the show. Um, because what it does is help us to progress through the ranks and um, help more people hear the message and and hopefully get them some change. Enjoy your Wednesday. That's when this drops. If you're listening to it later, enjoy the day or night that you're in in that moment. And uh, for now, peace.